0: Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. So a few years ago, I learned that Father's Day is actually the lowest attended Sunday of any holiday weekend in the church. And so I believe that's because the church has a tendency to spend Father's Day bashing dads and guys in general. And some of you have experienced that before, and you're here today, and you're nervous. Uh, And so that's not going to happen today, but one thing I do want to say before I begin is I want to commend the men that are here today, uh, because you made a decision that a relationship with Jesus is important, and as a father or a future father or someone who wants to be a father, that's the best thing that you could do, and and that all starts with showing up, right, on the lowest attended Sunday uh, of any any church experience, it starts with being here, so thank you. Uh, Last week during my sermon, I mentioned that I think Frederick drivers have more bumper stickers on their cars than any place that I've ever lived. And this led to multiple people asking me, why don't we have collective bumper stickers? Which is a great question. We don't have collective bumper stickers because of me, because I am an angry driver. (laughs) So I learned how to drive in Northern Virginia on the beltway, so I have no mercy when I am driving. And because of that, driving anywhere, but particularly in Frederick, makes me go insane. I get so angry and I get so frustrated, and I don't interact well with bad drivers if you know what I mean. So I don't want people knowing that I go to Collective (laughs) because of the way I drive. And of all the things in my life, the thing that frustrates me the most right now and the thing that, that makes me the most angry is when I get on the road and I start trying to drop my daughter off at daycare or I start trying to meet up with somebody and I can't get there because of bad drivers. And so what are the things that day to day, what are the things that you are frustrated by? And I mean on a deeper level. What are the things that you get frustrated by regularly? Most of the time when we get frustrated, it's because our our experience doesn't match our expectations. And Stephen Furtick, who's a pastor in North Carolina, calls this the expectation gap. We have an expectation that's here, but our experience is actually down here. And so our level of frustration and disappointment is always higher. I expected happily ever after, but I got divorced and on the market again by 30 I expected it's a boy, but I got, I'm sorry, you might need to consider other options. I expected a raise, but I got, we're on a budget freeze, so maybe next year. I expected everyone knows how to drive because I had to pass a test, but I got Frederick Drivers. When our expectations don't line up with the reality that's presented to us, it leaves us cynical and apathetic, and we just don't know what to do. And one of Jesus' parables is about just that. It's a story of a group of people who are frustrated And they're frustrated because their expectations don't actually match up with the reality that's presented to them. Now the parable that we're going to talk about today starts with this phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. Another phrase for the kingdom of heaven is also the kingdom of God. So if you're ever reading scripture, if you're ever reading the Bible, and you see kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God is talking about the same thing. And a simple way of thinking about this is this, this idea of the community that God has created. Or if Jesus was king, right? When we think about heaven, Jesus is the ruler of that. And so when Jesus teaches and says the kingdom of heaven, he's saying, this is what I want my world to be like. This is what eternity with God will be like. And to be honest, we also know that this is the kingdom that God wants to create here on this earth. And so that's how this parable begins. And so we're going to read this today, and it starts in Matthew 20, starting in verse 1. It's called the parable of the workers. So the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. And so far it starts, it's very simple. A landowner goes out early in the morning, and specifically he goes out at 6 o'clock in the morning to find and hire workers to harvest grapes in his vineyards, and at the end of the day he'll pay them a denarius, which is one day's wage. So you work for a day, we'll pay you for that day. Jesus continues... About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. So again, he goes back out a few hours later, and he finds more people standing there. He says, hey, come work in my vineyard. And during this time in the first century, when it was harvest time, a landowner would actually have to go to the market to find daily workers because they had such a short amount of time to get the crops harvested and in the barn before they spoiled And so in this scenario, there's a level of trust between the workers and the landowner. The landowner trusts that the workers will work hard and harvest as much crop as possible. And the workers trust that the landowner will pay them fairly at the end of the day. This is pre-filling out forms, right? And so there just had to be this level of trust. And the story continues. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About 5 in the afternoon he went out and found still others standing around and he asked them, "Why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing?" Because no one has hired us they answered. He said to them, "You also go work in my vineyard." So with 1 hour left in the work day, there's still a group of people waiting. And it's really cool because they could have gone, given up and they could have gone home, but they had hope that maybe someone would come and hire him. But what we actually learned from these people is that working one hour was more beneficial for their family than them not working at all. And the story continues. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came in and each received a denarius. And so this story tells us that the guys who were hired last were paid as if they worked the full day. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. The, these who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have been born the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? This whole story is about these workers and how much they are frustrated, these 6 a.m. workers. When watching the workers who started at 5 p.m. get paid the the full day's wage, their expectations changed. It was in that moment they saw they got paid the same amount that we were offered, so therefore they believed that they would be paid more for their work. They assumed that they would be paid multiple denarius uh, because they worked so hard that day. They worked more than the last group. They expected it. They worked through the middle of the day, but that wasn't the case. The workers who started at 6 a.m. were paid the full day's wage, just like the landowner had promised. But they were frustrated because their expectations didn't match reality. And then Jesus actually sums up the story with this quote, Matthew 20, verse 16. He says this, So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Now, when reading this parable, whether you've read it before, this is the first time you've heard it, it's easy to understand why the 6 a.m. workers are frustrated. They worked harder than anyone else, and yet they still got paid the same amount. And it doesn't seem fair, and it doesn't seem right. My first reaction when I read this story is I think the first workers kind of got gypped. They should have just slept in, they should have hung out with their family, something. They should have shown up at 5 p.m. because the 5 p.m. workers got more than what they had earned, and they didn't even think twice about it. They took that money and they went home. So many of us, when we hear this story or we wrestle with this story, we feel the same way. We feel like it's unfair and frustrating And a lot of times we connect that to our own unfair and frustrating situations that we experience in our own life. But we have to remember that this is an illustration about the kingdom of heaven. This is the story that shows us the character of God. This isn't about literal workers and literal pay. It's much bigger than that. This parable is about the grace that Jesus offers. It's an illustration of our relationship with God. God. We learn that we can follow the rules and try to do everything right, but we are incapable of being perfect, so we have to rely on God to offer us grace. That it doesn't matter when we decide to follow him. You could have grown up in church, you could have started following Jesus in your 30s, or you could decide at the very end of your life that you want Jesus to be the leader of your life. And no matter when that happens, you will receive the same grace as everyone else. There is no time limit. It's not too late. You will get the full of Mount. And some of you, I know, struggle with this, especially those of you who are on the fence when it comes to following Jesus. You think it's too late for you to receive that grace. You think it's too late to repent and to actually turn away from the life that you are living. You think that if you choose to follow Jesus now, that it still won't be enough. You act as if there's a meter that starts when you're born and it begins with 100%, and as you get older and as more sin enters your life, that meter just gets lower and lower and lower. But this parable is a reminder that no matter when you join the harvest, you will get the full benefit. No matter when you decide to follow Jesus, grace is available, forgiveness is available, hope is available, love is available. And it's not some cheap, discounted version. It's not the bargain bin, it's the real deal, and it's not too late for you. There's nothing that you could have done in your past, and there's no brokenness in your life now, and there's nothing that you will do in your future that will eliminate you from receiving grace and love from Jesus. And to be honest, that's the reason why some of you haven't taken that step to fully commit, to fully take that step and to fully follow. And for some of you, it's the reason why you haven't actually taken that step to be baptized, to put your faith in Jesus, put to death your old self and raise up your new self. Because you feel like there's this meter that just keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller and you'll never be able to fill that back up. And this story tells us that's okay. It doesn't matter when we join the harvest, the grace is full and it's available. Now, looking at parables... There are many different angles that we can approach uh, to what Jesus is saying. And that's actually one of the beautiful aspects of parables, that we can insert ourselves into every single aspect of this story, and we can learn something about ourselves, and we can learn something about God. So in this specific parable, we can learn from the workers who started later in the day. We can learn that grace is available even at 5 p.m. We can learn from the landowner. What does it mean to offer that same grace to the people who show up at 6 a.m. and work through the day as the same grace we offer the people that show up in the middle of the day and at the end? We can put ourselves into a scenario where we actually think, what was it like to be in the crowd listening to Jesus in that moment? What was it like to be somebody who was interacting with Jesus, who they weren't quite sure was the Messiah, weren't quite sure was the one sent from God? What was that like? But today I want to focus on what we can learn from the first set of workers, from those guys that showed up at 6 a.m. to the guys who showed up before the sun was up, Who worked through the heat of the day and finished to receive their daily wage. And so, if you are frustrated with God, whether you follow Jesus or not, if you're frustrated with God, it's very possible that you struggle with what a friend of mine actually calls 6 a.m. syndrome. And 6 a.m. syndrome is when you are frustrated with God because you think you deserve more. And there are a few symptoms for you to know whether or not this is something you struggle with. But before I get into the symptoms, I want to talk about the two groups of people that are a little bit more susceptible to this 6 a.m. syndrome. The first group is those of you who have been Christians for a very long time. And the second group is those of you who have spent time attending irrelevant churches. And let me explain. For people who have been Christians for a very long time, there's a tendency to drift away from grace. And most of the time, it's not on purpose, and it's not planned. It just kind of happens. And we treat grace like a gym membership, where Jesus pays the initial membership fee, but we feel like we have to pay these monthly dues to keep it going. We want our life to reflect the changes that Jesus is making, so we try harder and harder and harder to pay our dues and to earn our keep. And one thing that we know is that it doesn't actually work that way. But because of that, we begin to resent people who follow Jesus the way that we do. We begin to struggle with people who don't work as hard to have a relationship with Jesus because we've been following him for so long. The other group that's in danger of falling into this trap is those of you who have spent time in an irrelevant church, churches where it's all about tradition and rituals, churches that focus on making you feel guilt and shame for the ways that you have fallen short, churches that don't talk about real topics or have real people. So instead of encountering Jesus in a practical way, you are ingrained with a thought process that following God is irrelevant, and going to church is about the things that you actually do. You've been taught that it's about earning your keep, which again, is not the way that grace works. And so there are two symptoms that would show that you might have this 6 a.m. syndrome, that you might be like the first workers who showed up that day, or at least you might be moving toward that place. The first symptom of 6 a.m. syndrome is that you compartmentalize your life. Now, sometimes compartmentalization is good. If you have a busy job that causes you stress, if you can keep that in the work compartment and then go home and focus on your wife and kids, that's a good thing. You You should compartmentalize those things. But the guys in the story who complain actually compartmentalized because they emphasized their own work ethic but ignored the fact that they are being ungrateful. They separated their work from who they truly were. And they thought it was okay to be selfish, to whine, to complain because they'd worked hard that day. Compartmentalization starts to happen when you look at your life as a game of trivial pursuit. You treat your life as if you're, the goal is to collect all of these pieces of the pie. And so you have the blue piece, that's your job, and the pink piece, that's your marriage. The green piece, that's money. The brown piece, that's family. The yellow piece, that's faith. And you take a step back and you look at this pie, and you think you've completed everything in your life. You look at it and you think that you have a well-balanced life. But what you don't realize is that God doesn't want to be one small piece of the pie. He wants to be the whole thing. And so compartmentalization happens when Jesus is just a piece of the pie instead of all of it. And then it becomes one of the deadliest aspects of the 6 a.m. syndrome because compartmentalization leads us to rationalizing our sin throughout the week. And here's what happens. A lot of Christians, people who say that they are followers of Jesus, wake up early on Sunday morning, they put on their church clothes, they come to church, they go out to eat, they go home. And when they hang up their church clothes, they put it on the same hanger that they put their faith on. And so on Monday, we lie to close the deal. On Tuesday, we lose it on the road because the driver cuts us off. On Wednesday, we go on that site we shouldn't, we look at those pictures. On Thursday, we fudge the numbers on our report. On Friday, we drink too much to justify it's been a really long week. On Saturday, we're just lazy, we ignore our wife and our kids and we act like this is all okay because on Sunday, we'll put those same church clothes back on, we'll show up here, we'll sing, we'll pray, we'll take communion, then we head home to do it all over again. And 6 a.m. syndrome makes, a, makes it so we live one way during the week in a completely different way on Sunday. And if I'm being honest, I think this happens because for some reason we convince ourselves that Jesus doesn't really care. That he doesn't really care about all of the pieces of the pie, that he only wants that one part. That Jesus doesn't care if we have integrity in our work, that Jesus doesn't care if we honor our spouses, that Jesus doesn't care how many times we swipe right, if we treat our neighbors well, if we pray, read scripture, or simply seek him out during the week. And we convince ourselves that Jesus doesn't actually care, and then our beliefs don't match our lifestyle. So you get to the point where you say you want God's plan for your life, but you haven't opened your Bible all week. You say you're seeking out the right person because you want to have a healthy marriage that is centered on Jesus, but you don't stop yourself from meaningless hookups. You say you care about reaching people who don't know Jesus but have never prayed for your family or friends who are far from God. You say you want authentic relationships or you say you feel lonely, but you've never stepped foot into one of the small groups that we have or checked off the box to join the team and serve alongside other people. And we do this because we have a compartmentalized life. But at some point, you'll end up saying that you're not experiencing life to the full that we talk about here all the time. You're not experiencing that life that Jesus promises, and the reason why is because you're not pursuing that life. Jesus will give you life to the full, but only when you give your full life to him. And if you compartmentalize, that will never happen so I just wonder if some of you are really frustrated with your experience with God because you haven't, you've been relegating your experience with God to an hour in this room every Sunday, and that's it. The second symptom of 6 an syndrome is that you put tradition over mission. Now think about these guys' perspective, the guys who are frustrated, the guys who are complaining. They say to the landowner, this is how it's always been done. They say, this is how everybody else does it. This is what we learned growing up. So this is then what you have to do. Tradition is more important than mission. Over the last nine months since we launched in September, I've learned a lot about Collective. And one thing that I noticed specifically around Christmas is that there are people that only come to Collective on Sundays when they want to bring their friends and family to church. In fact, uh, I bumped into someone a few weeks ago at Starbucks and I remember seeing them at our launch day at Christmas and at Easter and I asked them why we hadn't seen them since. And their response was that they had friends who wanted to go to church and they didn't want to bring them to their regular church, so they brought them to collective. And so every time someone in their life is interested in church or pursuing God or learning a little bit more, this is the place that they bring them. They come to collective. But the rest of the time, they actually go back to the church where they grew up. If I'm being honest, I'm super conflicted by this. On the one hand, I love that Collective is a place where people are comfortable bringing their friends and family, that people know that we are a genuinely welcoming church, that people know that we're going to talk about real issues and real topics that practically help us take steps closer to Jesus, that people know that we have a great band and a great kins environment. I like that people think of Collective as a church that is safe for their non-Christian friends and people in their life who are far from God or trying to experience their God, people who have doubts, people who have questions. I'm proud of that. But on the other hand, I struggle because it frustrates me on behalf of those people who are choosing a church based on where they have always gone or choosing a church based on the faith that their parents want them to have or the building that they've always gone to. Instead of accomplishing the mission that Jesus set forth in seeking and saving the lost, they end up at a different church. And I just want to tell you, if there's another church that has a better environment to bring people who are lost, if there's a better church to bring your family and friends, you should be going to that church. And I'm not saying we're the best at it, What I'm saying if this isn't the best place, you should find that church. And if you told me that, I would fully understand. But the church you bring your friends and family to should never be different than the church that you regularly attend. The mission is more important than what makes us comfortable. People are more important than our feelings or tradition or what our parents want. Eternity is more important than what is convenient. And the thing that's most important at Collective is helping lost people find Jesus. It's pursuing the lost sheep that's wandered off. It's caring for people in our life that have found themselves in a ditch. And the reason why is because we are hopeless. We are broken. We are drowning. But there's a person named Jesus who is God, who is man. He's reaching out to us with a lifeline of hope. And so when someone is dying or helpless or just plain lost, it's our responsibility to share with them the message of hope and the full life that Jesus offers. And so for us at Collective, that's what's important here. And if Collective ever loses sight of that, or if we, if, we get, uh, if we get lost for the sake of what we like, or what we've always done, or if it becomes a, this is the tradition of this church, we've lost our mission. And Jesus' words in Mark 7 8 apply to us as a church when he says, you have let go of the commandments of God and are holding on to human traditions. A few years ago, there was a show on TV called Obsessed, Anybody watch it? It was just for one season. It's pretty Nobody. Awesome. You guys are going to judge me (laughs) super hardcore right now. Nailed it. So this show was a documentary-style series about people who had obsessive-compulsive disorder and anxiety disorders. And in one episode, there's a guy named Rick who has garriscaphobia, which means he had the fear of getting old. And we started to feel anxious about that. He started to realize that he is getting old. He would have to go to the gym, so that was how he coped and how he got through it. So on this specific episode, they're following him around. He's driving home from work when he starts to have a panic attack. And so he drives to the closest gym, he jumps out of the car, he grabs a workout notebook where he keeps track of every workout that he does. He runs inside and gets on the lap machine. He puts on the weight of 10 pounds and he does 10 reps, writes in his notebook, turns around and goes home. And that was it. He did one set with 10 pounds of one exercise. And while watching the show, I'm thinking, there's no way that this guy works out regularly. And then watching him work out, I was thinking, there's no way that does anything. (laughs) And for some reason, his garriskephobia had him messed up so much that working out had nothing to do with being in shape. It was all about writing the numbers down in his notebook to prove that he had worked out. And someone with 6 a.m. syndrome looks at church the same way, where it becomes, how many times did I attend this year? It becomes, did I read my Bible every day, or how much have I given financially? And not, do I love God more now than I did six months ago? Do I feel closer to him now than I did a year ago? And as weird as it looked for this guy to be on TV working out with one set of 10 pounds, I think that's exactly how God looks at us when we have that syndrome, when we wake up and we go through these spiritual motions and think God is happy for us. And so tomorrow morning when you get up and you read your Bible, will you read it because of obligation or tradition, or will you read it because the creator of the universe can speak to you through those words that have been written down? Will you spend time in prayer because you need something from God and you're hoping for a lifeline, or will you talk to God who loves you so much that he gave up his own child so that you could live and spend eternity with him? Will you work in the field because you want to get paid at the end of the day, or because the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few? And so what do we do? What do we do when it comes to frustration that we feel toward God? What do we do when we struggle with the 6 a.m. syndrome where we have these expectations of God and they're not matching our reality? I think there are two things that help us break away from that, to break away from the frustration we feel and the anger that we feel towards God. The first is that we have to recognize what we have and be thankful. And the second is that we have to honor the Master, So we have to recognize what we have and be thankful. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we know that this is actually easier said than done because we rarely have the time or ability or even the perspective to take a step back and look at our life from that 30,000-foot view. A few years ago, I was struggling to recognize what I had and to be thankful for it. My expectations were not matching my reality with God, with the church, with my job, with all of those things. And during that time, a friend of mine sent a letter titled, titled, Welcome to Holland. It was written in 1987 by a longtime Sesame Street writer named Emily Pearl Kingsley after her son Jason was born with Down syndrome. And here's what she wrote She said, I'm often asked to describe the experience of raising a child with a dis- disability, to try to help people who have not shared that unique experience to understand it, to imagine how it would feel. And she said, It's like this When you're going to have a baby, it's like planning a fabulous vacation trip to Italy. You buy a bunch of guidebooks and make your wonderful plans: the Colosseum, the Michelangelo by David, the gondolas in Venice, and you may learn some handy phrases in Italian. It's all very exciting. And after months of eager expectation, the day finally arrives. You pack your bags and you're off, and off you go. Several hours later, the plane lands, and the stewardess comes in and says, "Welcome to Holland." holland you say what do you mean holland i signed up for italy i'm supposed to be in italy all my life i've dreamed of going to italy but there's been a change in the flight plan they've landed in holland and there you must stay and the important thing is that they haven't taken you to a horrible disgusting filthy place full of pestilence famine and disease it's just a different place but you must go out and buy new guidebooks And you must learn a whole new language, and you'll meet a whole new group of people you would have never met. It's just a different place. It's slower paced than Italy, less flashy than Italy. But after you've been there for a while, you catch your breath, and you look around, and you begin to notice that Holland has windmills, and Holland has tulips, and Holland even has Rembrandts. But everyone you know is busy coming and going from Italy, and they're all bragging about what a wonderful time they had there. And for the rest of your life, you'll say, yes, that's where I was supposed to go. That's what I had planned. And the pain of that will never, ever, ever go away because the loss of that dream is still a very significant loss. But if you spend your life mourning the fact that you didn't get to Italy, you may never be free to enjoy the very special, the very lovely things About Holland. I don't know what Holland is for you. It could be like Emily where it's having a child with special needs. It could be being single as everyone around you seems to be getting married and having kids. It could be realizing that you're going to settle in a different tax bracket, a lot lower than what you had hoped for. But don't let what you expected keep you from what God wants you to experience. Don't let your frustration stop you from recognizing and being thankful for the lovely things that are in Holland. The second thing we have to do is we need to honor the master. See, the people in this story got to experience the goodness of this master, and they missed it. They got to see how wonderful this landowner was, but they were too busy complaining to see it. In the story, the owner doesn't care about a fair wage because he wanted people to live. And these people are daily workers, and so they're the low men on the totem pole. So if, if he pays them what they deserve, if he only pays those last guys for only one hour of work, they're not going to have enough money to feed their families at night. And so what the master is saying, I want to give you life. So I'm going to give you what you need even if you don't deserve it. And most of us, were the same way. We hear this story and we easily identify with the first set of workers because we want what's fair, and we get frustrated. But Philip Yancey says that when we act this way, we risk missing the story's point because God dispenses gifts, not wages. None of us get paid according to our merit because none of us come close to satisfying God's requirements for a perfect life. If paid on the basis of merit, we would all end up in hell. So when you read this parable, do you know who the hero of this story is? This what the story is all about. It's the landowner. It's the master of the vineyard. It's his story. He keeps going back to the marketplace, even though he doesn't have to, even though he has the workers. He continues to go back over and over and over again. He goes back in the eleventh hour. He's going back to see is there anybody else in need. He goes back to see is there anybody else that could benefit from being here. This landowner can't stop hoping that maybe he'll find another person. Maybe he'll find one more prospect with no hope, thinking that they'll never be a part of anything, desperate for an hour's pay because it's better than what they're currently having, which is nothing. But the best part about the story is when payday comes, he gives them a full measure. In the same way God will give us a full measure of his grace, we are not people who have kept the rules. We wish we were 6 a.m. workers. We wish we'd been there from the beginning and we'd worked hard the whole time, but that's just not who we are. We are all 5 p.m. people. We come in at the last hour, but God still offers us grace. He offers us grace beyond what we deserved. It's not discounted. It's not a smaller portion. It's full, and it's good. So I don't know what you are frustrated by, And I would never insult you by saying that you shouldn't care about those things. I'm just asking you this please don't insult God by acting like He can't give you life that's even better than the one that you're living right now. Because at Collective, we're not a church of 6 a.m. perfection, we're a church of 5 p.m. grace. Let's pray. God, thank you that we get to read these stories. And God, even though when we read them, we struggle. God, that we feel frustration, or or God, we're not quite sure we understand your character. God, we're just so thankful that at the end of the day, uh, whether we show up at 6 a.m. or 5 p.m., your grace is full. God, that you don't love us less if we show up in the middle of the day. You don't love us less because we don't work the full time. But God, that you offer us 100% of yourself no matter when we come to you or how we come to you, or God, how much we mess up in the future. God, I pray as a group of people that we don't get stuck in this 6 a.m. syndrome where we compartmentalize you into other pieces of our life. God, that we put tradition over mission, but God, that we actively seek you out and do everything we can to show other people how good you are. God, help us make sure we don't get caught up complaining when we're watching you do good things right in front of us to other people. God, help us be grateful for those things and long for those things and remember what it's like to experience those things. God, we thank you for this story and how much it shows that you love us.